And so uh, I trust God uh, will use his word for us this morning. And may I add my voice to all the dads here and, and dads wherever you may be. Happy Father's Day. I am uh, uh, kind of sorry that we're preaching Esther on Father's Day, uh, so uh, my bad on that one. Um, I didn't plan it that way, and if it makes you, makes you feel any better, we'll just call it the book of Mordecai this morning, okay? Uh, he's actually prominent in chapter 8, and so here we are in this uh, wonderful passage as things continue to turn for God's people by God's grace. Esther chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, hear now the word of God. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell on his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, and in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. The scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script, in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy 
and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us your word, that we may now consider it. We pray that you, in your kindness to us and through the spirit that resides even within us, that you would give us great insight to the truths that lie within your word. Not simply that we may know more, but that we may know you more. That we may draw closer to our God and our King, the one whom we have praised today, the one who we have declared worthy is Lord of all. We've come to the Lord of all to hear from his word. And we pray, as we have heard long ago, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was in 1860 that three businessmen created what we now know as the Pony Express, a mail delivery service to the expansive West. It was, they, at that day, in 1860s, what, 160 years ago, had the unbelievable guarantee of a 10-day delivery. Okay, so not quite up to our standards, but pretty, pretty good 160 years ago. Uh, they, they, of course, didn't have to fight traffic or deal with logistics. They had to fight bandits and Native Americans. It was, in fact, one of the most dangerous jobs in the world at the time. The job posting read, wanted young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18 years of age, must be expert writers, willing to risk death daily. And it's, uh, uh, for that, they earned $25 a week, which was 24 more dollars a week than the average unskilled laborer. In order to prove their claims that they could actually uh, uh, fulfill this 10-day delivery, they tested the Pony Express on November 7, 1860, and through a series of relay riders, declared the news to California that Abraham Lincoln had indeed been elected president. In fact, they did it in less than 10 days, 7 days and 17 hours. Soon the Pony Express expanded to 120 riders, all weighing under 140 pounds. Typically, they would ride 175 miles a day and would change horses every 19 miles at Pony Express relay stations. All the boys on the first day of work were given uh, three things. They were given a pistol, they were given a Bible, and they were given the goodwill of those who would send them, and that they would survive the dangers that they were to undertake. One of them became rather famous in his day when he took an arrow in the jaw and losing three teeth in the process and yet still delivered his mail. Of course, the most famous was a 15-year-old. His mama called him Bill Cody. We call him, of course, Buffalo Bill who once discovered on one occasion that his relief rider had been killed, and so he took his companion's mail and traveled over the most dangerous section of the trail, completing 322 miles nonstop on 21 different horses. Of course, the Pony Express didn't last long, did it? Just 18 months. The Telegraph made sure that it would not be with us for long. And yet it's found its place in American lore. Uh, hasn't it, as we continue to speak of it and are reminded of it occasionally. Of course, it did not originate in America, this idea of delivering 
mail quickly on the back of horses. It wasn't something that we discovered in Wyoming in the 1860s, but actually was something discovered in the 5th century in the nation of Persia. It was Herodotus, the Greek historian, who said that the Persian uh, uh, mail service had stations every 14 miles. Herodotus would write, Nothing travels as fast as these Persian messengers. Along the whole trail there are men stationed with horses, and they will not be hindered from accomplishing at their best speed the distance which they have to travel. And so this, this is, of course, the system which Haman would use to declare and to publish his terrible edict in 11 months' time that the Jews were to be annihilated by their neighbors and their goods to be plundered. This, as we've already seen in our study of Esther, brought great grief and lamenting, fear and despair. And yet it's the same system that we'll see today which will bring a gospel, which will bring good news of promised deliverance. If you're just joining us in our our study of Esther, maybe you're just jumping in on the live stream or haven't been following along. Esther, of course, is a very long and wonderful story. It is a story that an edict of death has been declared against the Jews in Persia. The Jews are to be killed. And yet we, we discover that the queen, her name is Esther, happens to be a secret Jew. She comes out of the closet, so to speak, if you will, and she begs the king for the life of her people. Destruction is coming. The king, as we saw uh, last time, said, who did this? Who is the one who has passed such an edict? Of course, she points across the table to Haman. His mouth is full of mutton. And uh, she says, I'm a Jew, and that's the man who has done this. The king storms off in his rage, doesn't he? And Haman is terrified, goes to Esther to beg for his life, and in the process falls on top of her. At which the king comes back, sees this man on top of his wife, and says, hey, man, what are you doing? Okay. And, of course, uh, Haman was quickly killed on the gallows that he had made that morning for a man named Mordecai, who happens to be Esther's father. And that's where we left it off at the end of chapter 7. Haman is now dead, uh, hanging upon a 70-foot pole. And we think, was that the end of the story? No, of course it isn't. It's quite a cliffhanger. Because though the, Haman may be dead, the edict remains. It's a ticking time bomb waiting to explode So it's here we pick up the story, wondering if God's people will be rescued. And here in this incredible story of the book of Esther, I've mentioned, I think, that Esther I found incredibly difficult to preach. Uh, Maybe you have found it equally difficult to listen to. Uh, And and yet it is is quite a challenge. And the challenge for me in the book of Esther is how many times and how many different ways can I say God reigns? God is sovereign, God is providential, God has a hidden rule, which of course is the point of the entire book, which is a point to which we continue to return. And yet, sadly, it is a point that's often missed in the stu- and when people study the book of Esther. Many read the book of Esther and are seeking to find moral nuggets from which they can pull out of it. And they, they identify the good guys, and then they identify the bad guys. And they say, okay, well, you be like the good guys, don't be like the bad guys. They read the book of Esther almost as a, a book of virtues. And here are the virtues to emulate, and here Here are the the sins for which we must shun. In fact, one commentator says, Esther is a book about developing godly character. And which I I say, no, it's not. It's not a book about developing godly character. It's a book that declares to us, though God is not mentioned once, that he is reigning even in the darkest times to fulfill his plan and to keep his promises. In fact, I would suggest to you, as I've already, already taught, I'm not sure you could find good guys in the book of Esther. 
I mean, certainly they're complicated, aren't they? And certainly Esther and Mordecai, they do incredible things, things we can learn from, things I'll I'll try to teach us this morning. Yes, this is noble, we should be like that. And yet they do some things aren't so noble. I mean, Esther hides the fact she's a Jew. We'll see next week that Esther uh, goes back to the king and wants the ten dead bodies of Haman's son impaled on poles in his front yard. That's kind of an interesting request, isn't it? I mean, these are complicated characters, and so the point of the book of Esther, in fact, the whole point of the Bible, is not simply to teach us virtue, but to point us to God, who keeps his promises to save his people and to deliver them. And this is, I think, really what Esther chapter 8 is about, God's deliverance. In fact, we read the Old Testament, and we're constantly seeing God say to uh, his people, I will be your God, and you will be my people. God says, I I want to enter into a relationship with yours, to use the biblical language, a covenant. We're going to be in a relationship. And God, if you will, is is like a father to his his people. As Josh reminded us uh, this morning as we began our service. He's a father to his kids. Sometimes the kids are obedient, sometimes the kids are not obedient. In fact, the obedient kids, they're back in Jerusalem. They've already gone home. It's the disobedient kids living in Persia. And yet God still loves them. God still is committed to them. God will still provide for them and take care of them, will rescue them, as we shall see in this book. And yet he does it in subtle ways. And so we'll consider the subtle reign of God today in his deliverance of his people and show how it leads to great rejoicing. We might think this text teaches us about a joyful deliverance. We'll pick it up in scene number one, Esther's plea. You know, verse 1, we read on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, and Esther had told what he was to her. And so here the estate of Haman is now taken from his children and passed on to Esther. Esther then goes on to reveal the relationship that she has with Mordecai. Of course, Mordecai, the king now knows, is the man who saved his life, who uh, saved him from that assassination plot. And so the, 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 he re- learns that Mordecai happens to be his queen's dad, and evidently King Xerxes is in a giving mood because he takes off the signet ring, which is perhaps still warm, from Haman's hand, and he places it on Mordecai, as you see in verse 2. And the king took off the signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to uh, Mordecai. And so uh, now Mordecai... Uh, quite surprisingly, has become the prime minister of Persia, uh, second in command to the king. The queen evidently is also feeling generous. She goes on to give Mordecai the estate of Haman, as you read on in verse 2. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. What does she need a country estate for? She's living in the palace. So here you go, Dad. You can have Haman's estate as well. I mean, this is quite a change, isn't it? I mean, Mordecai goes from working in the cubicle in the administrative building to the second most powerful man in the world in a matter of hours. I mean, it's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, in fact, I would think there would be many reasons for Mordecai to decline that role. Could you imagine if today, this afternoon, uh, someone calls you and says, you know, I want you to be vice president or I want you to be the uh, on the Supreme Court or Speaker of the House? What would you do? I wonder how many of us would say, no, thank you. 
Right? I don't want that responsibility, or I don't feel qualified. I would think to be at this position would require years of training and preparations in order to get Mordecai to this position. And yet here the king hand, hands out the signet ring and says, will you be my number two? And Mordecai accepts in order to serve God's people, as we shall see. I think sometimes God's people are given opportunities to have responsibility and authority that God opens up, and quite often they decline. I think Mordecai is a wonderful example. If God opens a door, it might be that he wants you to walk through it, even though you may not aspire after that responsibility or even that authority, it might be useful for his very people. And so now we see the Jews occupy two very powerful positions in the Persian uh, Empire, two very influential positions. The, the, the queen is a Jew, and the, the, if you will, the prime minister is a Jew. Or we might put it this way. Uh, they have uh, one Jew who's mediating for the people of God before the king, and the other is exalted to rule on behalf of the people of God by the king. That should sound familiar to you as this book continually points us, of course, forward to the gospel. And so here, Mordecai has been promoted. But as great as that is, it's not really what Esther's after. And she's not, she didn't come up with this whole scheme in order to get Haman's estate or get her dad promoted. What, she wants deliverance for her people. The edict, Haman's edict remains. And so she approaches the king again. And you'll notice that her tactic this time is far different from what we saw earlier in the book. As you see in verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell on his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. No more dinner parties, no more subtle manipulation. The royal dignity, the robes in which he once cultivated is now simply discarded. And Queen Esther throws herself down at the king's feet like a common beggar on the street, watering his feet with her tears, weeping there. Doesn't care what other people think. Isn't mindful of other people's opinion of her, for she is so moved by the plight of her people. We find that the king happily is not annoyed with this approach. This man who's very fickle, he holds out the scepter as she regains her composure. You note verse 4, when the king held out this golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it pleased the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes. You, you notice uh, she, she's once again choosing her words very carefully as we've already seen. Four ifs, if this, if, 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 if. And none of them, as we saw in earlier chapters, is appealed to justice. If you think genocide is a bad idea, she doesn't bring that before the king. He doesn't care. She appeals once again to his self-interest. In other words, all the if point to, if you want me to be happy, right? Then, dear, will you please do this? As you read on in verse 5, what does she say? Well, she says, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Save my people, she cries to him. Deliver my kin, says the one who is very rich, very comfortable, now certainly very secure in the king's palace. She's not concerned about herself, is she? 
Her salvation wasn't enough for her. If it didn't come to her people as well. She says, how can I live knowing my people are going to die? That might remind you of another Jew who was also devoted to the Lord and burdened for his people. For he would write, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers. Of course, those are the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, thinking about his kindred according to the flesh, the Jewish people, and how they are not receiving the gospel. And Paul weeps for those who are in need of deliverance. Esther weeps for those who are in need of deliverance. I wonder if there's anything of that in your heart. Do you share an equal concern? You see, once we encounter Christ and receive his grace and mercy, immediately our concern ought to go for those who remain in need. Kind of like a hero of mine, Adoniram Judson, a man we talk about often here. Once he became a Christian, he immediately became burdened for the world without him. He expressed that burden, writing, how do Christians discharge this trust committed to them? They quietly sit and see the whole nations perish for a lack of knowledge. It's out of that burden for the perishing that Adonai Judson would become America's first foreign missionary some, uh, what, uh, 230 years ago. And he would, he would go to the nation of Burma and spend the rest of his life there. But God would also use him, by the way, to create a mission-sending agency, which came to be known as the Southern Baptist Convention, the very convention that we belong to and support as we continue to seek that the gospel be proclaimed even to the darkest regions of this world. He would sacrifice much for the perishing nations. I wonder if there's something of Judson's heart in you, something of Esther's heart in you. I wonder if you too, if I too, am grieved and burdened for those who are perishing. Is this not Jesus' heart? Is it not in Matthew 10, he said, when the Bible explains, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Might we learn to pray, Jesus, please help me feel the compassion for the lost that you felt for me when I was lost. Might we learn to pray as Jesus has taught us, Lord, will you not send out the workers into the harvest? Might we learn to pray that we might be counted among those workers, sent to harvest to call God's people in. Esther here is wep- weeping and begging, saying, I can't live in the palace. I just can't go on with life while my people are headed to destruction. And we see once again God using her in a mighty way. I do want to note just by passing that Esther plays this huge role for her people. And she does so as a woman, but not as a mother. I, 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 want, I want, especially the women here, especially those who are not mothers, to hear this. Often we see in the Bible the contribution that women play, play precisely because they are moms. And so we might think of Sarah or Hannah, right, or, or, or Rebecca or Elizabeth, certainly Mary. We say, okay, yes, they see their role that they play for the kingdom of God in nurturing their children to follow after God. But Esther is not a mom. We don't ever see her holding a baby in her arms. 
Motherhood, without doubt, is an honor from God and a vocation for many, many women and should be embraced as God intends. It is perhaps one of the greatest honors God could bestow on anyone. Massive ministry implications in motherhood. But let's not think for a second that if you are not a mom, or you may never become a mom, that God can't use you. It's simply not true. And Esther, I think, is a massive declaration of that reality. And she begs the king for the life of our people. We see, secondly, scene number two, the king's response. You know, it is somewhat dismissive, isn't it? In verse 7, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. They've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. It seems to me as if the king's saying, Well, you know, what, what, what more do you want? I've already hung the man. I took his house and I gave it to you. I mean, you, you're protected. Nothing's going to happen to you. You guys are hard to satisfy. What do, you, what do you want? He's almost annoyed, it seems to me. And he says, just do what you want. Don't bother me with it. i got other things to do, as you see in verse 8. But you write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And so here we learn about that famous uh, phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians, that they, they cannot revoke their law. And so Esther's request to its, to its letter can't be fulfilled. She goes and says, revoke Haman's edict. King says, I can't do that. We don't do that around here. We don't revoke it. But how about you just write whatever you want in order to contradict it, contramind it, right? And so he says, go, go for it. And then we find, once again, the king acting as he has uh, done before. I, I, don't, I don't want to be bothered with these matters. You just do what you want. We would think that the trouble uh, that occurred the last time the king gave away his ring and said, what, write whatever law you want, I don't care, would give him pause for doing it a second time. You think the king might have accumulated some wisdom, but no, he says, just go ahead, write some irrevocable law in my name. What do I care? And of course, we'll see uh, that's the plan that Mordecai will embrace. It'll be edict versus edict. Right? May the best edict when, as we turn to scene number three, Mordecai's strategy, he doesn't waste any time, does he? As we come to verse nine, which, by the way, uh, just for a bit of trivia, is the longest verse in the Bible. Esther chapter eight, verse nine, I read it for my children last night in one breath. I will not attempt that today. The king's scribes are summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in his own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Osuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, spread from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. You note that Mordecai is deliberately echoing the language of the original edict that Haman wrote. Haman decreed on a particular day that the Jews were to be destroyed, to, kill, to be killed, to be annihilated, and their goods were to be plundered. Now, 
Since that time, the enemies of the people of God have been preparing. They've been gathering their weapons. They've been making plans, coming up with strategy, dividing the spoils beforehand. Okay, you take this house, or I'll help you with these guys. You come help me with those guys. That house is nice. Let's go get it. And, and the plans have been brewing as to how to destroy some 15 million Jews living in Persia at this time. You know, of course, the scripture tells us that the role of the law is to prevent evil. It's here to restrain evil. And yet we find in Persia that the law is actually used to pursue evil, in particular against God's people. And that's just not a Persia problem. I mean, you go to Eritrea or Indonesia or Vietnam or North Korea or Afghanistan or India and other places like that. And we'll see God's enemies using the law to strike down God's people. And the homes are burnt, the people are beaten, the churches are destroyed, they're run out of town, their jobs are taken, they're arrested for evangelizing, and they are martyred. You know, of course, in the 20th century, more Christians were killed for their faith than the previous 19th centuries combined. This continues this day. This is not an ancient issue. This has always been the issue. As long as God has had a people, they have been opposed. You go back to Genesis 4, and we see it there. Ask Abel about the opposition of the world. Or, you don't, or go, go to Birmingham. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Church of the Highlands were kicked out of ministering in the public housing projects, kicked out of their work of racial reconciliation, kicked out in their uh, helping the poor, They provided a free COVID clinic. They had after-school mentoring and did a free social service ministry. All of that has now ended simply because the pastor liked one of the president's tweets about China. Now, I I don't like a lot of the president's tweets, but I don't think that ought to end your vast ministry when it has nothing to do with helping the poor. And yet what we see here is there's opposition to God and his work. And so Mordecai comes and says, okay, in light of that, God's people can now defend themselves. And note very clearly, this is what he's saying. This is about self-defense. This is not about you going out searching for your enemies. It's but if they come attacking you, you can fight back. It's like a police officer returning fire. They're firing on me. I have a right to defend myself. So I have guns in my house. Why I have one by my bed. Maybe you do as well. Right? Because I have, I have nine people living in my house that I am tasked to protect. Right? Of course, it's sad and it's a tragedy whenever a life is taken. For we know the scripture tells us that all life is made in God's image, whether you love God or not, and therefore is, is worth of value and dignity. And it's a tragedy whenever, when one is lost for any reason. And yet I think we see in scripture, and I think history bears this out, sometimes the only way to protect the innocent is to engage evil with violence. And we see this is exactly what's happening in the book of Esther. And yet there's a violence that is limited. For you read in verse 12, on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So this is not to continue for weeks. It's not to continue for months, years. This is not to be generational conflict. Haman was given one day for the people to kill the Jews. The Jews are given one day to defend themselves on that day. Tomorrow, if you're still angry and you're a Jew, you're not allowed to go attack people. And so this, of course, is published throughout the kingdom, which I believe is to be a very loving act. It's now declared, so everybody will know 
If you attack the Jews, they will not be passive. They are now going to fight back. You might want to rethink your plans. No one needs to get hurt. We just go about our business. But if you come after them, they will defend themselves. Now, of course, there's this little phrase there in verse 11, I believe it is, this troubling phrase of children and women included. If you have the NIV, it actually translates it somewhat differently. It actually translates it that the women and children belong to the Jews and they're being defended. But most commentators don't think that's an accurate translation. That they are saying the Jews can defend themselves even against women and children. I, I will note that, that Mordecai is using the exact language that Haman used, just quoting him and reversing it. And I'll also note that it seems what he's saying is if, if someone comes attacking your house and women and children are attacking, well, you can defend yourself against them too. And so in light of this, the Jews got ready as the edict was carried everywhere. So you note verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Imagine what that would be like for the Jews, who, of course, have heard those hoofbeats before. They brought bad tidings last time. I wonder what they thought when they, when they heard the horses riding into the village. This is more terrible news coming from Susa. Right? And then they would go up and they would nail the edict right next to the first edict. Perhaps one Jew mustered up the courage to go and read it and read what it <laughs> saw what it read and begin to shout, hey, come look, you got to come see this, come read this. And the people uh, in the streets became bustling with Jewish men and women as they came to read this new proclamation, not of bad tidings, but this one of good news. And you think about what, what amazing reversal we continue to see happening in the book of Esther that, that the, the tension undoubtedly was mounting for these people. You can imagine very easily that friendships had been broken off between Jews and their neighbors. That they wouldn't look, at, look them in the eyes anymore. Perhaps the murmuring was heard. Uh, they're a threat to the empire, these Jewish people. You can't trust them. They're not even Persian. They don't even speak our language. They're different. Right? They're dangerous. We're better off without them. And out of nowhere, this royal stallion gallops into the village and posts this edict. And the Jews read, oh, by the way, the new prime minister, he's a Jew. Oh, by the way, the queen, she's a Jew as well. And the Jews have given the right to fight back. They can defend themselves. As God continues to work in amazing and providential ways in order to provide and deliver his people. I mentioned in an earlier sermon that many people consider the book of Esther to be a, a narrative illustration of Romans 8.28. Others have suggested that it's a narrative illustration of Psalm 2. And why don't you turn there to Psalm 2 just for a moment. It's one of my favorite psalms. And psalm 2, I think, describes a situation that has happened over and over again, but certainly one here in the, in the book of Esther. As you read in verse 1, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2 pictures the world's most powerful armies and generals and kings gathering together in order to oppose God and oppose God's people, much like we see in Esther. And so the question is, well, what does God do? When the world rises up in opposition, 
What does God do when the world mutinies? Does he call his generals together? Does he, does he take stock of his military force? Does he count, elaborate his strategy? Does he count his troops? No, the psalmist tells us, doesn't he? We see in verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Right? You see, God chuckles when the world rises up in opposition to him. Man's rebellion against the Almighty is laughable. And so the nations may rage, but God doesn't need to. He just simply laughs at it. And I've shared this with you before, but imagine in, in Mike Tyson's heyday, he decides to take on all challengers. So I'll fight whoever wants to fight. And so yours truly gives it a shot. And I walk into the ring, and, you know, I take off the robe, and I say, okay, let's go, Mike. Okay? What would he do? He would laugh. Right? You would laugh. Some of you are already laughing at the thought. Okay? Why? It's laughable to think someone like me could take on someone like him. Right? The, the arrogance is laughable. The, the folly is laughable. God laughs at this rebellion. He's saying, wait a second, I made you. I made the world you're living on. I give you air in your lungs. I hold you together by the word of my power. And you think you can defeat me. And he laughs at that. And once he's done laughing, he speaks. And the psalmist tells us it's terrifying. For we read in verse 5, Then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He says, you nations should be terrified because I have chosen my king. And he's no mere earthly king that terrifies the nations. Look to Zion, God says. Look to my holy hill and see my king reigns. And so what the psalmist tells us and what we learn in the book of Esther, that though the world may rise up in opposition, it will not stop God. I don't care if your name is Pharaoh I don't care if your name is Nebuchadnezzar. I don't care if your name is Haman. I don't care if your name is Pilate. I don't care if your name is Diocletian, a Roman emperor who once had a monument erected, erected in his honor reading Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesarus, Augusti for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west and for having extinguished the name of Christians. Seven years later, Christianity became the official religion of Rome. So the raging of the earth, well, they may yell and scream. They may plot and plan. It seems like it's going on more and more even in our day. But they will never threaten God's reign and therefore never threaten the promises he gives to us. And I think that should be incredible encouragement to us in this crazy day in which we live. As we see more and more laws passed, even laws coming out of Richmond, that seem to do such evil, such opposition to God and his ways. We ought to be encouraged knowing that God's plan is not going to fail. It ought to be a warning to others that if we think by our mere declaration that we can dethrone the Lord's anointed, well, you will find yourself, to use the silly phrase that is often used today, on the wrong side of history. Jesus is not up for a re-election. Want him or not, he is king of kings and he is lord of lords and you and I and all the most powerful and all the most rich and all the most brilliant people who live today and who have ever lived and who will ever live joyfully or not will one day acknowledge his reign. So rage world if you must. 
Make war on God and his people if you think it's wise. But an ant will not kick down Everest. God is on his throne. It is pointless to oppose him and his people. The better course, I would say, is to seek him and find his mercy. Find his grace. As it seems the Jews in Esther's day were reminded of this truth. This good news. Well, you see, it leads to joy in the streets, doesn't it? As we turn to scene number four, the people's praise. The people's praise. Note verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. You see, Mordecai's become quite a rock star, hasn't he? I mean, he just comes out. He's decked out in his new clothes. He has his new authority. And this time, not some temporary transfiguration that we saw earlier, but the permanent dawning of a new exalted position. We remember the first edict had an impact upon Susa. Remember, all of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now the second edict has a, uh, another impact upon Susa, and we read that they shouted and they rejoiced. The triumph of the people of God was good for the empire. Even as the Proverbs tells us in chapter 29, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people grow. Well, the righteous did increase, and that joy was, uh, came from the Jewish people throughout the entire kingdom. For you read in verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Right? Those who were under this incredible sentence of death now hear this gospel proclaimed that life is possible, and it's no surprise they rejoice. In fact, they create a holiday, as you see in verse 17. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the feasts, among the Jews. A feast and a holiday. Right? Somebody get a casserole. We're going to have a feast. Hey, we're having a potluck. I mean, the people of God are, are celebrating. They're rejoicing here at the end of chapter 8. Again, you see the reversal that's taking place as God works. In chapter 3, they were in sackcloth and ashes. They were mourning and wailing. They were fasting and lamenting. But now light and gladness and joy and honor, feast and a holiday. You say, who can bring about such transformation in a kingdom? Who can bring about such a transformation in a city or in a family or even in a human heart? I know of only one who could do it. It's God himself, of course. The unseen ruler of the world. For the psalmist says, you turn my lament into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with gladness. I would suggest to you, my Christian brothers and sisters, if 5th century Persia was filled with joy, because they have the right now to defend themselves against their armed neighbors, how much more should you and I be filled with joy? Should we not stand out as people of joy? And not not a superficial, silly joy that says everything's okay when everything's not okay, but even through tears and pain, that there will be a joy that the Bible describes as unspeakable, an unspeakable joy. And the scripture tells us over and over again, doesn't it, that we should rejoice always, we should shout for joy, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Well, if our joy is simply based in the pleasant circumstances of life, we will find joy to be rather an elusive companion. 
It will be a fragile joy, often shattered when, when, when this world strikes us with the cruel realities that we find here. But what if instead our joy was focused on the Lord and who He is and what He has done and what He is doing and what He will do for us? If our joy is found in Christ, well, we'll find joy to be a far more faithful companion to us. I've shared with you before, I'm sure, the first sermon that Jonathan Edwards ever preached. America's greatest theologian. At the age of 18, he preached his first sermon. The title was Christian Happiness. He had three points why a Christian should be happy. Number one, bad things turn out for good. Number two, good things can never be taken from us. Number three, the best things are yet to come. Bad things, good things, best things. Bad things turn out for good. Good things can never be taken from us. The best things are yet to come. Edwards would preach, if you believe this, You may look down upon the whole army of worldly afflictions under your feet with a slight and disregard. However great they are, however numerous, let them all join their forces together against you and put on their most rueful and dreadful habits and spend all their strength, vigor, and violence with endeavors to do you hurt or mischief. And it is all in vain. You may triumph over them all, he said, by believing in these things. And my friends, that's the key. We must believe. We must believe the promises of God. We must walk in hour-by-hour dependence upon them. We must rehearse these truths in our minds. I've been preparing to uh, begin a study in 2 Thessalonians, the book that we'll return to after uh, we finish up with Esther. And God's already been impacting me a great deal as Paul will teach something very similar, that, that, that we need to walk by faith in God's promises to us. And even this week, as I studied the book of Esther and realized the joy that should be mine, I, I, I resolved in my heart that I am going to be a joyful person. I'm going to walk in greater joy this week. And yet, it's simply not a resolution, something I declared would happen. What, what, what we must do to make that resolution actually turn into action is to do so by believing the promises of God. And so I thought, okay, what promises of God are there that, that should lead me into a joyful life? And I, I went to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when I learned that God is preparing an eternal weight of glory for me. I went to Ephesians 2 and reminded myself that I was once a child of wrath and now I'm a, a son of God. And it is those promises and others like them that I have been returning to really on an hour-by-hour basis as I seek to believe them that I might be filled with joy. That's what Edwards is teaching. That's what the scripture is teaching. That, that our feelings don't have brains. You need to tell your feelings how to feel. In other words, you just don't command yourself to be joyful. You tell yourself why you should be joyful. And you do so by telling yourself the promises of God. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones said long ago, you need to stop listening to yourself and start, and start talking to yourself. Right? Because you listen to yourself, oh, it's all terrible, it's all not going to work out, and he cut me off, and all the rest, all these thoughts pop in your mind over and over again, and all, rarely are they God-honoring, rarely are they leading us to greater relationship with him, and sometimes you need to say, excuse my language, shut up, self, and you start talking to yourself and say, no, you know what, my God is ruling on my behalf, you know, I was once under his wrath, and now I'm under his favor and affection by the grace of Christ through the cross, you need to tell yourself the truth that you might be a person of joy, as the Bible teaches. We need to fight for that. It's not as a passive. Please make me happy. That's nonsense. Seek what we know to be true. Fight for that. That's how Jesus taught the apostles. Remember that incredible story? Perhaps it's one of my favorites because I'm a preacher. And they, they come back from their preaching crusade. 
and, and, and they're just over the moon excited. They come to Jesus and say, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us. Right? We're casting out demons. Now, you may not know that, but for a preacher, that's our big day. I don't know what your big day is. You sell a couple of houses, you win the case, you get the promotion. For a preacher, his big day is casting out a demon. Okay? And they say, Jesus, I can't believe it. We're so happy. We're so joyful because demons are running from us. And what does Jesus say? Don't rejoice that demons are subject to you. Well, why? Why would I not rejoice in that? Well, because someday they might not be. Someday the church may be shrinking and not growing. Someday the health may be going down and not up. Someday you may not get the promotion. You might lose the job. Just don't, don't rejoice simply in these circumstances of life. What, does Jesus not want us to have joy? No. He says, but rejoice in this. You know what? That your names are written in the book of life. And that will never change. You are mine, and I am yours, and I am committed to your good for all eternity, and nothing will ever change that. Rejoice in that. These are the truths, my friends, we need to tell ourselves hour by hour as we walk by faith. That we have a teacher to instruct us, a friend to encourage us, a high priest to intercede on our behalf, a shepherd uh, to guide us, a, a king who reigns over us, a savior to redeem us. The Lord reigns, the psalmist says, let the world be glad. Not just the Jews, by the way, but the whole world as it seems to have happened as we turn lastly and quickly to scene number five. The world's revival. Perhaps that's a bit of hyperbole, but you will note the end of verse 17 these words, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Earlier in this book, if you were a Jew, you concealed it. Now, Gentiles are becoming Jews. Right? Some have declared this to be one of the most conversionist texts in all the Old Testament. That throughout the empire, the people are beginning to see the blessings of God on his people, and they want to join him just as God intended. As he spoke to Abraham long ago, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, as we have learned that through you and you, through your seed, the nations will be blessed. He says, I'm going to gather a people, they're going to live in my kingdom, and we know to be in God's kingdom is to be God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings, and I'm going to live with them, and I'm going to take care of them, and the world's going to look at what it's like to be a people of God, and they're going to say, we want that. We want that. And they too shall come into a covenantal relationship with God, and we see it happening here in the book of Esther. Perhaps some came uh, Jews because it was popular. I don't know. The queen's a Jew. The prime minister's a Jew. Hey, I want to be a Jew too. Maybe. But I trust that many were converted. Many were coming to their neighbors and saying, tell me about this God. Tell me, tell me what he does, what he has promised you. They, oh, we've read your gospel. We've read the proclamation. We've seen what's happening. We want to know him. And perhaps, once again, I, we see, as we see over and over in the book of Esther, the gospel is foreshadowed. Deliverance is announced from a champion in the citadel. I mean, you think about Mordecai striving around there in Susa, in this palace of glory, uh, with, with his 
robe and his crown upon his head, the authority on his finger. Uh, all of, of course, happens, this exaltation, all of course happens after he's virtually sentenced to death by being pierced upon a tree. And yet now he is exalted to this position and he uses it to work to save his people. The people in turn do what? They praise him for that work. Well, you don't see the gospel there. That we also have a champion in the presence of the king. That he too wears the glory of a crown and a robe upon his shoulders. He too bears authority over all the world. For he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. All of, of course, is after not simply being sentenced to death, but by experiencing it, by being pierced upon a tree. And now after that work, he is exalted as he works from heaven's throne room in order to save us, not from physical death, of course, but eternal. And we in response do what? Just as the people did of Mordecai. We praise him for it. In fact, we're very much like the Jews in Esther's day, aren't we? We kind of live in the middle. There's a time of tension, isn't there? And we celebrate the good news that Christ is risen, that Christ is exalted, that Christ is reigning. But we're still waiting, just like the Jews were, waiting for that day of final deliverance, final rescue. You say, what do we do in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, we do what we see in Esther 8. We make known this edict of deliverance. We publish this gospel. Mordecai wrote down his gospel. His servants took it throughout the known world just as Jesus has announced his gospel and tasked us, his people, to spread it wherever we might go. That is God's plan to defeat the rebellious world. Not violently putting down this rebellion, though that day will come if it persists. But first, he sends out his messengers offering peace as we go out and proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect life and died upon the cross as a substitution uh, for us, for our sin, and three days later rose from the dead and is returning in glory to establish his eternal reign. And now he offers mercy and grace to all who would receive it by faith and repentance. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. May that happen. May we be faithful in publishing that news, and may people receive it as they did in Esther's day. May they do that in Northern Virginia. May they do that in Eagle Butte and Ghana and Guatemala. May God let his gospel spread amongst the Kurds in Iraq as we support our partners there, and, the, and even the Americans in Lovettsville as we plan just a year from now to plant a church there. Might they too, throughout this world, have joy and gladness in knowing God. And may he use us, Hamilton Baptist Church, this little church in the middle of nowhere, to bring it to others, that their eternal destinies might be changed, and that our king might be glorified as we are faithful to announce this joyful deliverance which we embrace. Our Father in heaven, we are once again reminded of our great debt that we owe to you, that all that we have is, is from you, that you are so faithful and good to us even though we struggle with sin. Why would anybody not want your mercy? I, I continues to confound me. You offer it freely. Why would anyone not take the grace of God why would anyone hearing that God is willing to put his own son upon a cross so that he might offer forgiveness to somebody say to him, no, thank you. 
I'd rather go my own way. It is, in my mind, folly, arrogance. And for all those who find themselves in that position this day, I could hear my voice. I, I pray for them, Father, that you, by your grace, would do in their life as you did in my life some time ago. That you would awaken them to their precarious situation and to the offer of mercy that you hold out to them with nail-pierced hands even now. That they might bow their knee with great joy to King Jesus and say, I yield to you. Save me from my sin. And Father, those of us who have received that great news, I trust most of those here and elsewhere, may that fill our hearts to overflowing joy. There's so much in this world that would rob us of our joy. But it will only rob us of it if we cast our eyes off of what we have in Christ. And so help us this week to walk by faith in the promises of our great God, that we might be the joyful people that you call us to be, and that we might share the reason for our joy, that we have a Savior. We have a champion reigning in heaven, and he is coming for us. For we ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.